Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the ElfQuest Show podcast. This episode's going to be a little bit different. The first reason is that Ryan is getting prepared to go on a little bit of a trip, a European journey, and he's really slammed right now. So I am actually going to be doing this podcast by myself. And um, after, what, 30 episodes, I think it's probably time for me to actually learn how to record this thing and edit it, because Ryan has been doing all of that work since the very beginning. So um, if you heard the intro music to this episode, then I've actually figured it out. If not, we might just be starting with this. And if so, just bear with me and I'll, I'll eventually get it. Um, so this episode, we're going to be talking all about the line of beauty. The, the, the third in the series of amazing art retrospective books that are published by Flesk Publications. Um, the Line of Beauty was the last one to be released. It just came out. And so really wanted to do a special episode of the podcast to dive into this one because it is a very, very special book. And so in the, in the, in the spirit of specialness, I have a very special guest that's going to join me for this episode. It's Richard Peeney himself. Welcome, Richard. Well, hello, uh, David, and hello, everyone. When you said special guests, I, I was looking around here. I said, uh, what, uh, who, who came <laughs> in here that I didn't notice before? You're, you're but, pretty special. Ah, um, oh, golly. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, with that said, um, I, you know, I, we usually start these podcasts off with a little bit of um, you know, sort of news and updates. So just in case anybody does not know, um, I, I've already mentioned that there are three books that are published by Flesk Publications. The first one is called The Art of ElfQuest. The second one is called ElfQuest, The Art of the Story. And then this third one is called The Line of Beauty, The Art of Wendy Peeney. Um, they were the books that were originally um, funded by the Kickstarter that Flesk Publications did, um, gosh, a couple years ago at this point. And um, they are finally all printed. And again, this last book has been shipped out to the Kickstarter um, folks who pledged. And very shortly here, it's going to be available for retail purchase uh, directly from Flesk. Um, I've seen it up on Amazon. I'm assuming TFA and other booksellers will actually carry it as well. So um, again, just uh, on the off chance that you're listening to this podcast and you don't know about these books, you need to stop what you're doing right now and, and get them because you will be completely blown away. Um, and so we really have you to thank for that, Richard. Um, and that's, that's kind of where I wanted to start is, um, you know, tell us a little bit about just like how this all came to be, how you ended up working with Flesk and how we ended up with three books. That's a good place to start. As everybody listening to this knows or should know, Wendy and I have been making ElfQuest for almost 40 years. And in all of that time, we've put out several hundred, whether or not we've we've done all the work on them or not, we've put out several hundred uh, issues of the comics. We've put out two or three or four dozen books, collections. And in all that time, we've both been fans of comics, storytelling and comic book art and i had noticed that you go into a barnes and noble or you go into a, a comic book shop and you can find a lot of books that start the title begins with the art of and then you fill in the blank and whether it's comics or movies or anything like that 
there there are just a lot of them and i and i couldn't help but wonder why is there no art of ElfQuest book because everybody who looks at ElfQuest says the art's amazing and it truly is so why is there no book about the art of ElfQuest and I thought okay just as we started doing ElfQuest ourselves almost 40 years ago maybe we're going to have to do this ourselves but I, I, I just did not want to publish this I did not want to be responsible for that so I went looking around and uh, San Diego Comic-Con is a very good place to look around for publishers because that's where everybody goes. And there were oh, probably a couple of dozen publishers of art-type books at Comic-Con three or four years ago. Not all of them, I thought, in my never-to-be-humble opinion, were the kind of had the kind of book, the kind of product, the kind of production values that I wanted for ElfQuest. But there were a couple, and and uh, Flesk Publications was definitely one of them, because um, if you've seen any of Flesk's other books, they're just top-line, top-shelf production values to die for. So I went over to his booth, and I said, I introduced myself, and I said, uh, you do wonderful books. Have you ever heard of ElfQuest? And he knew ElfQuest. He said, yeah, I love ElfQuest. And I said, what, would you like to do an Art of ElfQuest book? <laughs> I'm, I'm condensing it, but not too much. And we got to talking. And at the same time, I was thinking there really ought to be a book about the Art of ElfQuest. The other half of my brain was thinking there really ought to be a book about Wendy's artwork in general. Because while ElfQuest is a big part of that, of, of her artistic output over the years, it's not everything. A lot of people know her for ElfQuest. They don't know the rest of the story, channeling Paul Harvey there. And there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of the rest there, as we've learned with this new book. But Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes, indeed. So I, I said, all right, you know, let's do an Art of ElfQuest book, but I'd like to do two books with you. Uh, I'd, I'd also like to do The Art of Wendy Peeney. And he was a little so-so about that. And I could understand that because at that time, he, like most everybody, was thinking, well, Wendy equals ElfQuest and ElfQuest equals Wendy. And, and we should take advantage of that. I said, OK, half a loaf is better than none. <laughs> Let's work on the ElfQuest book. Well, fast forward about a year and uh, John Fleskus the owner and the creative force behind the company, he's a very hands-on kind of guy. I showed him lots and lots of uh, scans of ElfQuest artwork, but he, he wanted to see the original artwork. And at that time, here in Poughkeepsie, New York, I still had all of Wendy's artwork in storage in, in the archives. So he wanted to make a trip here. It's great. Uh, he travels all over to work with other artists, and so he made a stop here. He was here for two or three days, and he came downstairs into the archive room, which I believe you have seen. I have. <laughs> <laughs> and I started showing him artwork. Now, there's there's 
dozens of flat files and dozens of, of drawers with stuff in it. And the more he looked, the more he just got into this. And he was going through originals after originals after originals. And he said, my God, I had no idea. <laughs> A, that there was this much material. And B, more important, that Wendy had such an incredibly wide range of other work that she had done. I can definitely, yeah, I can relate to that because you know, having having a little bit of you know a glimpse behind the curtain over the years um, that you guys have generously allowed me to get, um, but but even more so, getting this book Line of Beauty in my hands, and you know, even for somebody like me, that for the majority of my life I have been a huge fan of you guys and your work and Wendy's art. Um, I had no idea. I had no idea. And we're going to get to the meat of that in a little bit, but I want to let you finish your uh, your story. As I was saying, he said, definitely, we, we definitely have to do an Art of Wendy book in addition to the Art of ElfQuest book. So then we got down to the nuts and bolts of producing a book. And the first one was the Art of ElfQuest, and it's 300 and something pages of just beautiful examples of art that has gone into ElfQuest over the years. And somewhere in the process of doing that, the idea came up. It might have been mine. It might have been Wendy's. I don't rightly remember. But the idea came up, you know... There's another aspect to ElfQuest, and that's the storytelling process. Do you think we could do a book that's about that? And that's how Art of the Story came about. John and I sat down, and uh, we picked nine or ten of our very favorite ElfQuest stories from over the years. And then Wendy and I sat down. And did a whole bunch of interviews, just the two of us talking about page by page, going through, for example, Hidden Years number three, which is Little Patch. Mm -hmm. Okay, it starts with this scene and it ends with the same scene, but there's a complete shift of mood. What were you thinking? This was me being the interviewer to her. What were you thinking when you laid this out? Did you know you were going to do that? What was your mood? Going over every page, that color effect there, that lighting effect on this panel, what did you want that to convey? And we distill that down into notes that uh, are on every page of the art of the story. That it's about the art, but it's also much more about the process of crafting panel by panel, page by page, the art of that particular story. So that that became book number two. Yeah, which which when you announced that they were, that you guys had decided to kind of you know there was so much good stuff there that you had to do kind of two books there and that the whole Flesk series was going to be three instead of two you know there were all sorts of yippies across <laughs> fandom there so thank you for that. <laughs> uh, it 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 you know ElfQuest surprises us it continually surprises us by being more than even we. Imagine it to be at first. Right. <laughs> so the two books became three. And then when Art of ElfQuest was finished and ElfQuest, the art of the story was finished, then it was time to sit down and knuckle down and get to work on Line of Beauty. And O.M. 
gee, <laughs> what a process that turned out to be. Yeah, and I, and I really, I, I, I want to understand more about that process um, directly from you because uh, I'm glad you described a little bit of, of the, the first two books in terms of, you know, kind of their layout and the process, which is very different than what we see in Line of Beauty. You know, in The Art of Elf Quest and Elf Quest, The Art of the Story, it's very visual and there, um, there, there are these wonderful nuggets of insight from both you and Wendy that accompany the, the, the images that are in those first two books. Line of Beauty is different though. Instead of it being, you know, kind of a transcribed interview of you guys just kind of recalling things about the art and the story as you were telling them um, that are featured in those first two books, Line of Beauty is, it's a novel. You know, I mean, there. I, what, what was what's the final word count on this thing? I think it was like fifty thousand words. Yeah, yeah, and you of wrote text. It. Yeah. Um, well, I I wrote and or edited it. Um, some of those words are the result of interviews that Wendy did with Heather and Rob Biskitza. Right. And and a lot of those words are. Um, the result of other interviews that she did with Sonny Strait, mm -hmm. who is doing the color work on Final Quest right now. I had originally contracted with Sonny way back in the before time, thinking that because he had apprenticed with Wendy for a year and he was working with her closely, maybe he should be the one to actually write the text. And he delivered a manuscript, which was good, but I realized it didn't go in the direction that I had been thinking all along. And I realized, no, this is this is something I got to do myself because there is no one else in the world with the history and the perspective, not to toot my own horn or anything like that. But it's it's the truth for all the ups and all the downs that we've experienced together. There's nobody else who has seen it the way I have. Makes total sense. Makes total sense. And I do remember there being a little bit of talk about um, Sonny penning this. And I was excited for that because, uh, as you say, Sonny is uh, probably more than anybody um, really familiar with, with Wendy as an artist, you know, being having been her apprentice and, you know, currently working with her in Final Quest. So I was excited for that prospect. And in fact, um, some of the, the the stuff that Sonny wrote that made it into the final version of Line of Beauty is is really great, um, and we could talk again more about that as we get into the meat of this. But um, but with all of that said, I don't think anybody you will get any argument from anybody that <laughs> uh, you know about what you just said. Like I mean, who better to write this book than you? And and this is one of my big questions. Following off of that thought, it, I want to know in your own words. Um, what is Light of Beauty? Oh, my. Yeah, that is the $64,000 question, yeah. isn't it? As I said when we began this interview, anyone who loves ElfQuest loves the art. And people so often say, especially the, the fans who have been with us for a long time, there's nobody draws like Wendy. There's There's nobody who puts the the expressiveness or the motion or the liveliness into drawings the way Wendy does. And this is something that I have known on some level for a long, long time. Just there's there's no other. 
It's true. Nobody draws like anyone else, but especially when you're dealing with comics and 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 particularly franchise comics like Spider-Man or Superman or Batman or the Avengers, there are things called house styles. And while artist A won't draw exactly like artist B, you still want Captain America to look from one issue to the next, from one artist to the next, pretty much like you expect Captain America to look like. Right. We've had some wonderful artists working on ElfQuest over the years. They have all brought their own individual style to ElfQuest, but nobody draws the way she does, the way Wendy does. And it just bugged me. It just bugged the crap out of me <laughs> more and more as time went by that neither ElfQuest nor particularly Wendy was getting the kind of critical attention that I have always felt that both of those deserve. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this thing. I have insights into her history, into our shared history, into the process uh, that no one else in the world has. Sonny, for example, has other insights. You guys, you and Rob and Heather, have other insights. Sure. But nobody goes back as far and nobody... Nobody wants to do this the way I want to do this. <laughs> there we get That's to the meat a, of it. <laughs> not, 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 not a slam on anybody else. But, uh, uh, so I thought I want this book to be the equivalent of the Taj Mahal. Mm -hmm. Now, if you know what that is, that is this amazing, awesome, immense tomb I mean, everybody knows that it's this beautiful white marble building in India, but it's a tomb. And it was the sultan, and I forgot his name, that's that's where he buried his favorite wife. Now, I, you know, Wendy's still alive. <laughs> you might not be after she hears this. <laughs> oh, we've, we've had this conversation many, many times. In fact, she has said, you know... I didn't have to die for this, to, for this book. <laughs> no, actually, to be serious for a second, that, that was a, a related question. So since it's come up, um, yeah, usually this kind of book, this kind of retrospective deep dive into an artist and their everything about them, what makes them tick as an artist and what they brought into the world, happens long after um, the artist is gone. And in this case, obviously, Wendy is still here. She's still in her prime, still creating. And so... Just talk a little bit about that, about why now and how Wendy feels about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you do know how to ask the good ones. <laughs> well, as for why now, why not now? I mean, if not now, when? ElfQuest, we're coming up on the 40th anniversary, and we've known that for a while. Uh, what better time? But also there was that element of every year that would go by, I'd see this comic would get an art of book or that artist would get an art of book and to be candid you know some of them are, are kind of mediocre mm -hmm. you can find some beautiful art of books out there you can also find some that are simply you know page after page of art with maybe a caption but there's there's little rhyme or reason to it it's just done so that it can be sold i wanted this to be if nothing else ever 
happened. I wanted Line of Beauty to be something that someone maybe who never heard of Wendy before or who never heard of Elfquest before could pick up and realize that, wow, this is this is a special thing, kind of talent that doesn't come along very often. And I wanted to give that reader enough background, deep background to be able to realize that. So that's how I set about wanting to do it. Now, there was a little bit of a stumble at the beginning. Oh, what's that? Well, if you will remember, and I'm sure the fans will remember, because uh, Line of Beauty was originally scheduled for, I think, August of 2016. Right, right. And it's coming out in May of 2017, which is almost a year later. I was working on putting together Line of Beauty for months and months, trying to come up with a good structure, trying to come up with the right words, and it wasn't coming together. And I finally figured out why it wasn't coming together. There are journals of criticism out there. There are scholarly magazines out there There are that, that, that have to do with comics. You know, the Comics Journal is the premier one that comes to mind. And I thought at first, I want this to be a book that will be well reviewed by the intelligentsia of comics. Okay. You know, the uh, the ones who write scholarly articles about the meta meaning of comics, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us how you really feel. Uh, You don't want that. This is a family show. And so for many months, I was laboring under a misconception of what this book should be. I was thinking this has to appeal to the reviewers. This has to appeal to the scholars. And I was talking about it with Wendy one day. And I was saying, I'm just stuck. Bad case of writer's block. And she said, just write what you feel. What do you want this book to be? Just write what you feel. Now, I have to step aside for a minute and say she made it very clear from the get-go that while she and I worked very closely together on Art of ElfQuest and Art of the Story, she said, I don't want to have anything to do with the making of this book. That makes sense. Yeah, partly because a terrifically busy but b do you want to be present at your own examination (laughs) you're on the table yeah and uh, Uh, no it makes perfect sense i mean and and i know wendy has voiced you know little things here and there about um you know about about exactly what you're saying but also now that it's out her her um i don't know what the right word is maybe not anxiety but just you know like it's all out there it's all being exposed and that's um that experience for her is not it's not um it's not without its own anxieties yeah because from the beginning once once i broke through that writer's block and i realized what i wanted this to be and 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 one of the things that i wanted it to be and, and i think i have succeeded is i wanted it to be an expression of how her art and her talent and all of those pieces that go into making her the artist that she is, the storyteller that she is, I wanted it to be how 
how I felt about it without being treacly or or self-serving or any of those things, because it would be very easy. I wanted to keep ego myself out of this as much as I wanted it to be from my perspective. Right. Well, and that's yeah, I think um, that's really interesting to hear. Um, and it does make perfect sense seeing the finished product because you're, it's not treacly or overly complimentary. I mean, not that it's not complimentary, obviously, but it, that's not something that I, um, that I knew until you just shared it. But just thinking on what I've been able to absorb out of the book, I, it, I think you achieved that. And, and well, I, thank you. Yeah, what I was going to say is um, I wanted to ask you what you thought Line of Beauty was. Um, for me, as a reader... What I wrote down is that it is a, and I'm making air quotes here, everyone, a deep academic art analysis. Um, and so it's interesting that you maybe had some challenges when you were perceiving it uh, that way, and then you kind of shifted to opening it up, maybe to a little bit more of uh, having you know your heart and personal perspective really be the guiding force there. Um, because the second thing that I wrote in my notes as I was preparing is that, you know, I see Line of Beauty as a deep academic analysis of Wendy's art over her career, but equally it seems to be, for lack of a better word, a love letter from you to your, you know, your partner in life, your partner in business, um, over these 40 years, 40 plus years, right? ElfQuest has been around for 40 years, but Wendy has been, you know, an active professional and, and, you know, before that, a learning artist for her entire life. And so the, those two elements, again, to me as a reader, really, really shine through. And at the risk of, of being treacly, I think it's just the sweetest damn thing ever. And I love <laughs> the, the book starts, if you guys don't have it yet, one of the first pictures in it, and I'm kind of opening, flipping to the page here so I can find it. But it's the picture um, of Wendy and Richard. Somebody uh, snapped it from behind. It looks like it's in a hotel or maybe a convention hall. And it's Richard wearing the T-shirt that says, number one, Wendy Peeney fan. And I couldn't, I, I just think that's the perfect way to open this book. Because while it is deep and it is academic, um, and it is really solid on those counts, um, your love really shines through. And I think that is what makes this book special? Well, again, thank you. As I said a moment ago, I wanted to keep ego out of it. I mean, it's very easy when writing a book to use the pronoun I a lot. I was there. I did this. I observed such and so. And in the first pass, when I thought I wanted it to be very scholarly and, and uh, ethereal and defeat and all of that, I wanted not to use the pronoun I at all. I wanted it just to be factual. I wanted it to be very analytical and probably would have been dry as tinder had that gone in the direction. And I realized after Wendy said, just write what you feel, write what, that I had to, if, if it's from me, if it is a testimonial, then it has to be personal. And the trick was making it personal without making it self-serving. All through it, that's what has that's what has motivated. That's what has guided wanting it to be personal, which is a little more human, a little more reader friendly, if you will. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, making sure that the meat of facts and uh, anecdotes and uh, sources and all of that were in great abundance as well. Yeah, well, that, I think you were really you did that really well. And the inclusion 
of of interviews, both interviews that maybe you have done with Wendy, or you know, uh, interviews that Sonny has done, or or Rob, or, or others. They're kind of scattered throughout this book. Um, interviews that have been published in various print publications or online that you've been able to sort of take excerpts from and and put in the book. Uh, it breaks up that that sort of I aspect that um, that that is in there, and I think that that probably helps with that. Well, plus Rob or Sonny or anybody else is going to come from a point of view that's different from mine. They're going to they're going to ask different questions. They're going to have different interpretations. Wendy's going to answer those questions differently <laughs> than she might answer the same question for me. Yes. And um, it's just a different energy and a different dynamic when she speaks with somebody else than when we talk. And all of that was necessary to meld into this book so that it it's a much more complete picture than I would ever have been able to do yeah. just by myself. So um, let's talk a little bit about how you chose to structure this book. Um, and again, listeners, I know you're dying for me to start asking really specific questions about the meat of the book, the contents, and I'm going to get the, to that right after this. So, <laughs> so stay tuned. I but know, yeah, but I know what meat you're talking about too. <laughs> so, but, well, before we get to that, um, I do just want to pick your brain a little bit about how you chose to structure the book. Um, it's, you know, it's got chapters. Um, in addition to the chapters, you've woven in these, these sections called interludes. Um, you very cleverly named all of the chapters beginning with the letter D. So there's this nice alliteration, discovery, determination, delineation, divination, deviation, and digitation are the chapters. So... T tell us about that. Like, how did you end up there? Okay. I knew I needed a structure. First of all, you, if this was just page after page after page, in a, in a, it, it would be impenetrable. So I knew I wanted to do chapters. And the idea came, well, Wendy is, at the time we started thinking about this, Wendy was just a 60 or a little over 60. And the notion of decades came to mind. And in thinking about her life growing up, her development as an artist, there were fairly specific, well-delineated benchmarks. These, these periods in her life don't correspond to 10-year chunks. But I thought, ha, huh, interesting. I can call decade one when she was just learning how to draw decade two can be the Alakazam, the great years. Decade three can be the fandom years. Decade four can be this and decade five can be that without limiting, without without trying to shoehorn them into strict 10 year calendar chunks. And somewhere along the line, I think decade one, decade two, decade three. Well, she started drawing from the age she was two. So what happens? She was discovering, ah, decade one can be discovery. Once you know me and wordplay. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Once that notion took hold, okay, I need something that begins with D for every one of these six decades that will encompass her artistic life. And that's where the rest of them uh, came about. 
So, so be honest. Wow. That's really what caused the book to be, you know, come out six months after it originally was supposed to, because you had to come up with D's for all the titles. <laughs> I'm, I'm hurt, David. <laughs> I am hurt that you think it would take six months for me to come up with six D words. No, I know better. I know better. <laughs> Having arrived at that, I then realized that that was still a little bit too restrictive because there were other benchmarks that weren't strictly artistic periods, but they were periods of maybe some kind of spiritual growth or some uh, some kind of interaction socially that I could not necessarily put into this decade or that decade because they might span more than one of those decades. That's when the idea for interludes came up. And as I explain in either the preface or the introduction. Both of those pieces contain stuff that nobody else in the world would know except me. Why does this book exist? <laughs> For all the reasons that we've been talking about. What's this book about? That's what we've been talking about. Right. So interludes, I decided to call the other kinds of chapters between the decades interludes. So if if a decade is a period when Wendy was doing mostly fan work, well, an interlude might be when she was caught up in animation. Now, she's always loved animation, so that's not going to be like a, a, a calendar period. Mm -hmm. But it is a style of learning. It is a, a kind of interest that deserved its own chapter. So there's one in there about animation that includes her wanting to turn um, Stormbringer into a college animated film project. Right. So it's got some art in that. It includes uh, Pirate Jenny. It includes a bunch of other uh, influences and sources. There's one that's all about Red Sonia, which has something to do with her costume making and her love of cosplay and, and, and costume design, but also some business about the whole, she was Red Sonia. She was, you know, she was a booth babe. She was in a metal bikini. She can't possibly be a good artist at the same time. And how much crap, not only I, but a lot of other people think that that kind of attitude is. That's one, that's another one of the interludes. Right. So then I had a dozen of these, I'll call them chapters, and they just dovetailed one right after the other really nicely until that's that's the structure of the book. Yeah. Well, no, it, it works great. And and so let's dive into the to the content here. Um, and I want to say this. We're not going to go through everything in this entire book, because if you think the the you know, the 23 page comic based podcasts are long, we'd be here for a year. So I just. You know, I, I have a bullet list here, of just a broad brushstroke of some of the things that really fascinated me um, that I just want to kind of, you know, chat with you about and get your input on. And um, so, again, listeners, you're going to have to go out and buy the book yourself and read it and look at it and absorb it if you really want to get all of the juicy deliciousness out of it. Um, <laughs> so with that said, um, I mean, you, you, one of the things that I was going to bring up was that, that interlude about the, the Red Sonia period, um, you know, perfect example of something that, again, even somebody that um, is as deeply geeky about ElfQuest and Wendy's work as me had no idea about, you know, that she had this sort of uh, animated slideshow concept that, that she had developed um, 
And I, again, just the fact that there's stuff like that that's lurking out there that that people have not seen is just is, is brilliant that you're able to include it in here. Um, but I, I do want to talk about what you also mentioned, what, uh, this idea that Wendy's um, sort of cosplaying of Red Sonia and participating in the uh, the show with Frank Thorne um, could have any kind of negative, you know, sort of outcome from it. But you talk about this in the book um, kind of twofold. One, um, you know, this idea of, you know, you use the term booth babe, right? That, that because Wendy was in a bikini that she somehow couldn't be a, a serious artist uh, and that this was a you know, decidedly anti-feminist kind of thing for her to do. And, um, you know, without going into everything you say in the book, because, again, I want folks to read it, I, I'm just curious uh, if you have any uh, pity thoughts on that. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, in just a few words, because, as you say, the story and and photos and artwork are in the book. Wendy portrayed, cosplayed, Red Sonia from about 1976 through 1978. If you remember comics history, Red Sonia was introduced, well, uh, fantasy history. Red Sonia was a, a, a minor character in Robert E. Howard, in a Robert E. Howard story from the, I think, 1930s. And uh, in the mid-1970s, Roy Thomas resurrected the character, became a supporting character in the, in the Conan comic book. Character gained popularity. Frank Thorne started drawing the character in a very voluptuous way. And fandom, male fandom, went kind of a little bit crazy. Uh, boobs and butts. Right. <laughs> and we met Frank at a, uh, a comic convention in Boston. And he we got to talking and he said to Wendy, why don't you come in and uh, uh, compete? Uh, we're having the first Red Sonia Con in uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey at the end of the year. Why don't you come down and, and compete? Wendy took the challenge and ran with it, flew with it, actually, and, and won that costume. And part of the reason she won it was because of the sheer authenticity of the costume. But a lot of the reason that she won it was nobody inhabited the character the way she did. And so she became, I mean, there were other women who portrayed Sonia and who worked with Frank Thorne. There was the whole Wizard and the Sonia show and appearances at, at uh, comic conventions, but nobody nobody nailed it the way Wendy did. This was also socially a time, particularly in comics, of very vocal, I'll use the word feminism, but I'm not sure that that is entirely correct, but it's the best I have at the moment because, as we have come to learn, there are many shades and variations of what that word can mean. Sure. But there were a few very vocal critics of Red Sonia and of Wendy who accused her of pandering to the whole fanboy, slavering, boobs and butts, uh, exploitation kind of thing. And if you know anything about her, that is so not Wendy. Totally, yeah. Whatever the comics were doing, she delved into the character as it was given and expanded upon it. The thing that you mentioned, the, the slideshow artwork that's in Line of Beauty, was just one of several expressions of Sonia that she wanted to get out there that, that looked at the character from a 
a spiritual or a, a, uh, an emotional rather than just a physical point of view. That's something that really struck me when I was looking at those pages and that artwork. Um, how much that, uh, well, number one, how much they were just infused with Wendy and her point of view. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you know, this sympathetic quality and this, they were so much more about character than they were about, you know, the, the boobs, the butt and the sword. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah. and, and by the way, if you haven't seen the book yet, there are no words on those pages either. It's literally all communicated via, um, just Wendy's artwork. And so yeah. again, a brilliant way to, you know, showcase Wendy's art, but also the, the counterpoint maybe to those arguments or those criticisms. Well, that was the whole point. That went over, first of all, that that show never got produced, more's the pity. It just, we and Wendy were finished with Sonia, I think before that show ever had a chance to get off the ground because 1978. A little thing like Elf Elf Quest came around, right? (laughs) Yeah, but the point is it was done then and it showed and still shows that all of those criticisms, some of which were pretty hypocritical, had no basis other than the critics' own agenda or fears or whatever. But it had nothing to do in reality with Wendy. Right. So I want to just, before we wrap up on this section, I, I, I'm flipping through the book right now to find the exact uh, quote, but... Um, in the vein of sort of criticisms that came out of Wendy's portrayal of Red Sonia, is this this anecdote that you share in the book um, about uh, Paul Levitz from DC Comics sharing with Wendy and you yeah. the idea that perhaps you know Wendy maybe hasn't been taken as seriously as a as a com- comics artist or just an artist in general. Um, and that that there ha- the reason that there haven't been more of these kinds of you know kind of critical looks at her at her body of work um, you know that you talked about at the beginning of this interview as the reason why you wanted to do Line of Beauty and the Art of ElfQuest that perhaps Levitz has suggested that it's because Wendy wasn't taken seriously because she put on a metal bikini which blows my mind. My brain would never in a million years go from point A to point B. And I don't know if that's a generational difference. I don't know if that is a, you know, because I've, I've you know, I've been a fanboy of, of you guys, again, since I was 10 years old. So maybe I just see everything through rose-colored glasses. But I can remember when that happened and being shocked about it. And then re- reading that, that exchange here in Line of Beauty, it, it still blows my mind that we live in a world where that could be true. Um, and I just I, I want I want to hear a little bit more from you on that whole idea. Well, there's not really that much more to say. Paul Levitz came up to us after we had given a talk at Columbia University, right after we began to donate Wendy's original artwork to their uh, graphic novel archive, and he had this insight, which essentially you've you've given that since the second half of the 1970s, what people, critics, certain segments of fandom remember is the metal bikini. And that perhaps the reason that Wendy hasn't gotten critical acclaim or respect since those days, which if you think about it is 40 bleeping years ago, (laughs) right, is that the mindset persists that nobody 
who wanted to dress up like that and flounce around, that's how they saw the the whole presentation, could possibly be taken seriously, could possibly be an amazing artist. And when we brought it up, I think it was Wendy who brought it up. He said, Paul, that was 40 years ago. He said, fanboys have long memories. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I just, I think we were both rocked back on our heels to realize that. But you're right. That's part of why this book exists, because those fanboys may not read it, but a lot of other people will. And I hope they take from it that that was, was and is a moronic, fossilized, ossified mindset to have. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the, the thing that comforts me is um, that it's this, that kind of mentality, it, it, you know, that is really the, the, the reason why it's so amazing how, um, how much more diversified the world of comics and fantasy and all of this has become in the ensuing 40 years. Now, there's still a long way to go. But, um, you know, just using myself as a testament, you know, I... This would I you know I didn't even start reading ElfQuest until you know almost ten years after that that you know Wendy was doing Sonia and so for me none of that would have ever even remotely crossed my mind so if there's any hope you know hopefully there's a lot more of other people um, maybe that were not around to see those things in person but you know kind of look on them um, you know as part of Wendy's just another piece of her history that's amazing. Um, and I, the last thing I'll say on this is that I think the inclusion of the entirety of Wendy's Sonia monologue, if you read it and you still think that Wendy is just, you know, boobs in a bikini, then you're a fool and, and you deserve everything that falls upon you for it, right? Because if you actually paid attention, if you were in the room and you saw her and you heard that monologue, which I can only imagine, you know, actually having been in the room to hear it, then, then, you know, if, if you still think that, then, you know, quite frankly, you're an idiot, is all I have to say on that. I'm pretty sure you agree. Uh, yeah. What do you really think? Don't sugarcoat. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, this occurs to me, but this is something that I recall that we did just in the studio for the heck of it uh-huh. to see how it would sound. Yeah. Well, um, having heard Wendy deliver... Um, uh, a reading of one of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's stories um, and getting to, you know, hear her, her artistry, you know, the way she uses her voice and her performance. Um, I think anybody that gets, I mean, any opportunity to hear anything Wendy, that aspect of Wendy's artistry, I think that would be a, a really amazing thing. That's a pretty one. My hide will resemble a map of Shadazar's alleyways before long. Well, at least no one can say this warrior hasn't doled out better than she's been dealt so far. The poor son of a she-dog who gave me this no longer has a sword arm. Right or left. Ha 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 blood, but it's been a good day. My father... My father used to say, keep to the house, girl. Wield a cooking pot and leave cold steel to the men. Imagine a seasoned war horse like him calling this lovely metal cold. By Ehrlich, even when I was a child, I knew that a sword had a life pulse as warm as any man's. Steel breathes, 
It has a living scent to it. It screams like a hunting hawk in battle. Dead and cold, this blade, never. Not until the last drop of my blood has run. What's it like to have one's guts ripped out, I wonder? Can it be any worse than having one's maidenhead torn by force? Mayhap man's true virginity rests in the wholeness of his body. If that's the case, then you and I have done our share of deflowering, haven't we, my friend? Oh, no doubt I could drag some fellow off into the woods, knock him flat on his back and use him as I was once used. But I think I'd find little sweet revenge in that. Like as not the damnable dog would boast about it afterward as though the conquest were his. Such is the way of things. Gods, how I hate arrogant men! Woman is vulnerable. Unless she knows how to use a sword. Then the odds are evened up a bit. Mitra, strike me blind if that is untrue. No man shall have red Sonia, save he that first bests me in battle. I swore that oath in another lifetime, it seems. Have I denied my sex? Am I a shapeless, soulless thing, clinging to a surrogate manhood for the sake of a vow that no longer has meaning? Ah, it's stupid to question. A warrior shouldn't think too much anyway. After all, it isn't a bad life as living goes. You spill a little blood, drink your fill of ale, then spend the rest of your time trading tall tales with comrades in the dark of some smelly tavern. What brains are needed for that? Best not to think, but live like a wild animal, claws bared, with instinct and cunning sharper than mere thought. I, that is the way to survive in this world. The meek, the soft-hearted have no chance, more's the pity. I would that were not so. I would I were not what I am. But forged was I as surely as this blade I hold, and fate was the smith who tempered me in flame. There are friends awaiting me in hell. I hear their call. Sonia, Sonia, red Sonia. Damned you demons and devils, I'll greet you in the pit soon enough but not before I've made my mark on this misbegotten world. Do you hear, O Mitra? Not man nor God shall still my voice until I choose my death day. I, Red Sonia, she-devil with a sword. So um, let's go back to the beginning of the book. One of the things that I personally really appreciated in reading this, and, um, and it was really helpful in, in getting kind of the bigger picture of who Wendy is as an artist, is the, um, all of the touchpoint references that you've included here to some of Wendy's influences. And, you know, again, you see a lot of this in the beginning of the book, but, you know, there's Arthur Rackham and um, Gustav Doré, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Bernie Wrightson, uh -huh. Evan Earle, um, 
uh, you know, all the way to Jack Kirby and then the whole influence of, of, of the kind of manga Japanese uh, sort of influence on Wendy's work. But, you know, not only do you mention these things, because, you know, we've heard some of these things in other interviews, but you've actually included artistic references, you know, pieces of art from these other artists um, put together in here so that those of us who are very familiar with Wendy and are looking at it really can kind of see that thread of, you know, again, of artistic influence. And um, I thought that was really powerful, particularly the Evan Earl um, pieces where, uh, for, for do, why don't you tell everybody who Evan Earl is? Because I'm not sure lots of folks know. Evan Earl was a uh, a designer, a graphic artist, best known as far as as I am concerned, and I think as far as Wendy is concerned too. He was the lead designer, I believe, on Disney's Sleeping Beauty, that amazing film from 1949, was it 1950? I don't remember. But the look of that film was unlike any other of the full-length animated features that Disney had done before. And what Evan Earle brought to it was this amazing organic angularity and these broken, curving lines that provided so much visual and artistic tension. Wendy, that was one of those influences that Wendy took to very, very strongly. She grew up in northern central California in the town of Gilroy, the garlic capital of the world. And in that part of the world, there are amazing oak trees and oak trees of the variety that that are not the straight standing up type that you might have uh, here in the northeast. These are the, the gnarly branches turning and folding over and in on themselves kind of things like if you remember in in Snow White, the trees become when she's running through the forest, the trees become nightmare creatures and the, the sure. branches become fingers grasping out there. And they're just incredibly scary because that's what those branches look like. They're not nice, smooth, curving branches. They are they could become claws and they could reach out and grab you. And that was one of the visual influences that Wendy gravitated to as she was when she was a young girl as she was learning how to draw she drew things she drew things from real life she drew horses she's a little girl girls love horses that's what she said (laughs) but she loved these trees and in learning how to draw these trees without really consciously knowing it at the time those informed a variation on the line of beauty which is that term of art that was first used by William Hogarth in 1753, uh, the S-shaped curve. Well, the S-shaped curve is very, very pleasing. But if you break it and you bend it back on itself the way, for example, New Moon is two curves bent back on themselves to make the blade and two more curves bent back on themselves to make the moon-shaped hilt, that gives that very pleasing line a dangerous edge evan earl was the was the king of drawing stuff like that if you look him up there are some examples in the book if you google the name and you see his graphic output he did many many hundreds of prints almost all of them have that wonderful uh threatening tension to them at the same time as they are incredibly beautiful yeah that's um the the 
this is one of the things that I really wanted to talk about. So I'm glad it just sort of came up organically here. Um, this is something that until I read Line of Beauty, I, I perceived, but I was completely oblivious to that perception. You know, like I saw it and my eye loved it. But you do, you spend a good bit of time throughout Line of Beauty uh, talking about this, about not just using the straight S curve, which is lovely and beautiful in, you know, in and of itself, but how Wendy has really mastered it to the point where she can kind of break it and chop it up and use it in different ways to create, you know, a different, uh, you know, a sense of tension or, or whatever. And, um, and so I just wanted to thank you for that because it added a whole layer of understanding to Wendy's work that I just didn't have before. And going back to my original comment about the influences, the, the one image that you've included of the tree by Evan Earl really just screams it. It screams the, the concept of breaking the line of beauty, um, but it also really shows, you know, again, sort of um, maybe where some of uh, Wendy's artistic roots um, kind of grew out of. Well, thank you for that. There are some examples. One, one that just sticks out in my mind brilliantly, it's from the original quest, and it's when we first meet Timaine, and she talks about, through Suntop, she talks about learning how to live on the world of two moons and adapting. And there's there's one shot of her becoming a tree. Right. And that is so Evan Earl that it's astounding. But it's not a copy. It's her own learning of how to bend and break that rule that works to such incredible. In fact, I'm looking behind you there at the posters <laughs> that you have up on your wall. And there's with the strangleweed that's full of those. Yes. Those broken lines of beauty. I knew I wanted line of beauty to be the title of the, of the book because I'd heard of that term from long ago. Uh, and I knew that it referred to the S-shaped curve. Now, that curve has been known since antiquity. But again, it wasn't until William Hogarth sat down to analyze it that I began to realize, oh, my God, this really is applicable here. But then I began to look deeper and realized that it's applicable in ways that Hogarth never talked about because he was talking about strictly the line as it applies to objects and in space, on paper, in the form of a vase, that kind of thing. But I realized that Wendy's artistic arc is not just an S-shaped curve or a sinuously flowing curve of shapes on paper. It has to do with movement through time. It has to do with dance. It has to do with animation it has to do with so many other things and then then i realized oh you picked a good title there bub <laughs> now you got to deliver that's right <laughs> all of these all of these different ways of looking at her art and her artistic evolution coming to mind oh there's another chapter oop there's another chapter ah so the evolution of the book was as organic as the evolution of her artistic style. Because I didn't sit down and say, okay, we're going to have 12 chapters and this one's going to be number one and this two, three, four. The more I worked, the more I discovered. And it was, it was weirdly synergistic because 
it was like hitting the first domino and and watching the others fall. I didn't know when I hit the first domino that I would be led along certain paths of inquiry. Mm-hmm. But once on those paths, they just kept getting more and more interesting. So I got to put that in. I got to include that, too. This book is 300 and something pages long. It could be twice as long. Volume two. <laughs> well, from your mouth to John Fleskis' ear. Uh, it was as much a voyage of discovery for me. And you think, well, you've known her for 40, 45, going on 50 years. Don't you know everything? And the answer to that is hell no. Right. I discovered as much about her process and what drives some of her th- artistic decisions in the doing of this book that I had not known before. Just as you say, you know, I didn't know about Evan Durrell. I didn't know about this before. Same for me. Well, that's fascinating. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess that's a good thing. I mean, if you knew every last detail about uh, your life partner, then things would be pretty boring, right? So life is about discovery. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we're, we're living in interesting times. <laughs> All right. So um, one thing that really stood out to me, and I'm curious um, for what your thought is on this, is in the very beginning in that first chapter um, where you're kind of talking about Wendy developing her, her artistic skill, you know, it, it starts out with very, um, you know, kitty kitty level drawings. You know, it's it's you know, all one dimensional and it's sunshine and it's lots of horses. Um, (laughs) And what you have chosen to share doesn't seem like there is, um, there's a huge gap in time between, you know, sort of the, the very little kid art of horses and Wendy's tales featuring her toy horse named Blackie. Um, And you have this, this, you share this entire, little tale that Wendy illustrated and what I'm guessing might be one of her first, um, first ever sequential art pieces. Um, but looking at the, the, the horses that she drew, um, as a little kid, and then she couldn't be much older looking at the, that, that story of Blackie and the dramatic improvement, you know, artistically, you know, I'm just talking, being able to depict things in a realistic way, but she's using perspective and she's using three quarter, you know, kind of positioning of characters. She's doing designs on clothing. She's featuring herself as a kid in this story and it looks like her. So, I mean, (laughs) like, like what, what potions did she have to drink and what gods did she have to sacrifice to, to go from being where we all are as little kids drawing these kind of flat, you know, animals and horses to be able to do something like that? Well, if I knew that, I'd bottle it (laughs) and uh, sell it at very, very high price. One of the things that I, I think I knew this on some level, but one of the things that came out very clearly to me as I was working on the text of this was how committed she made herself be to taking things in visually and retaining them. Now, you have to go back. This is early 1950s, early 1960s, and... I don't want to go into too much detail here because a lot of it is in the book, but her family life wasn't great. 
And because it wasn't great, she took refuge in creating worlds, creating characters that were better than the world that she was living in, putting those worlds and characters down on paper. She also very much loved fantasy books. You had mentioned Arthur Rackham illustrations, Edmund Dulac, uh, Gustave Doré, all of those. And those inspired visions of worlds beyond this one. She also very much loved, still does, animation. So there were cartoons on TV, and every once in a great while, an animated feature film would come to the movies. But you have to remember, in, let's say, 1961, you saw a movie. You either went to see it in the theater. If you didn't go see it in the theater, you didn't see it. No, it's going to be out on Blu-ray in four months. Right. Uh, no streaming, no computers. <laughs> what a primitive time it was. <laughs> I know. Stone knives and bearskins. So she trained herself to watch, and she she describes herself as a human video recorder. She would watch a cartoon over and over if she could, if it was on TV, or if, you know, in those days... I think some movies still do this, like every Thanksgiving, certain movies are shown every year. It's a Thanksgiving tradition mm-hmm. or every Easter, this, that, and the other thing. Wizard of Oz comes around every year. I mean, you can get it on any format you want, but the TV shows it. It's it's a wonderful life at Christmas time. Right. She would see these things as often as she can, and she, and, and she recorded them internally. And then she would go to her room and translate what she had seen and recorded to drawings on paper. She didn't really know of comics at that age, but she knew that storytelling could be done by pictures in sequence. You know, you read the newspaper, the comic strips. There's however many panels tell a little story. So, for example, the Blackie story that you're, you're talking about there, she knew about kids' books. She knew about illustrated books. She knew about at least comic strips. She knew about animation. And without studying it at all, because I mean, she was like eight years old, she knew that those were drawings. Those were individual drawings that were being flashed before her eyes in a sequence. So she put all that together and made her own comic strips or comic books if you want. But they're not just kids' drawings because there's progression there is perspective, there are word balloons, there are sound effects, there are there are all the things that make a comic strip or a comic book. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I guess really all I can chalk all of this up to is, you know, innate talent, right? I mean, this is something that's not everybody can do, especially at a young age. And, um, you know, the fact that Wendy so intuitively grasps this stuff and was able to do something about it. You know, she put in the she put in the 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 the, the time in front of the pad of paper, um, and she practiced and she got better. And you really see that in these, in these opening sections of Line of Beauty, where you really like you literally have, you've chosen pieces that show the progression, but also it's really clear the rapidity with which Wendy was able to kind of master all of these different mediums, you know, crayons and pencils and, um, you know, so it's just incredible. And also another, another important note about line of beauty is that, um, their part of this is, is a biography. You know, I mean, I know, I don't think you set out to make this a biography and it's certainly not a comprehensive biography, but you have shared enough of 
Wendy's personal story and backstory that um, some of which I, again, I had never heard of before um, that you do kind of get more context for who Wendy is as an artist and a person, just like, just like sharing um, the, the images of some of Wendy's artistic influences puts her artistic work in a context that, you know, maybe people who are just ElfQuest fans or Wendy fans um, maybe would never have seen before myself included. Um, the sharing of some of the, you know, again, the personal details that you were just mentioning, um, you know, really do help put uh, Wendy's career and life and art and work in a little bit more perspective. So if nothing else, that's that's a really compelling reason if you're a, a Wendy fan, I think, to want to pick up this book. I knew I did not want to write a biography. Some art of whoever books are that. They start with a chapter on childhood. They go, they, they're very linear mm-hmm. through time. I knew I did not want to just do a linear chronology of her artwork, but at the same time, you can't escape it because you got to have, you got to start somewhere and you got to get to here. So there is definitely an element of chronology to it, but that's why you have the decades and then you have the interludes because the interludes are going to break. The interludes, for example, the one on Red Sonia, is is not chronologically following whatever the chapter is before it, but it's it's germane and meaningful to that emotional, spiritual, psychological moment in her artistic life. But yeah, there's certainly biographical stuff in there, but it's much more it was much more important still is that I try to capture the essence of what makes her a unique storytelling artistic talent than anything else sure yeah and again like for all of the um the the context for who wendy is as an artist and a storyteller that you have put in um, in this book, again, we've mentioned some of them already, and uh, you know the the manga influence, the the Jack Kirby influence, the Disney, all of those things again help us, you know, just again put put put, put where does Wendy fit on the map of of, of American artists, right? Um, it, at the same time, all of that really also serves to to demonstrate just how damn unique Wendy is. Um, you know, and and seeing her art from the very beginning to the current stuff, there, I mean, it's there's a consistency, there's a style, um, even though it's evolved and changed and had, you know, kind of different points of emphasis over the years, like it's all Wendy and it really is like nothing else. I mean, not that in my experience, I don't know anybody else that does stuff the way that Wendy does. No, I mentioned this in, at some point, maybe in, in the preface to the introduction. Um, I was at an awards ceremony a, a year and a half ago, and uh, Mike Mignola, who does Hellboy, sure, was up uh, received an award. And the introduction to him coming up on stage, the presenter said, "You know, sometimes an artist has such a distinctive style that it is said that somebody draws like that artist." And Mike Mignola is one of those. Nobody, nobody draws like him. Right. I mean, if you look at Hellboy, it's an absolutely unique style. Yeah, for sure. When Wendy's like that, nobody, uh, she certainly doesn't draw like anybody else, and nobody does. I don't know if anybody can draw like her. Yeah. She 
is unique. If you take the way she has gotten from where she started to where she is, the combination of influences and and artistic decisions and and life decisions, there's just nothing else like it out there anywhere. And that's another reason I felt that had to be celebrated somehow. Yeah. And this book does a little bit of that. I think it does a lot of that. (laughs) Um, So so this leads me right into another thing I wanted to um, really get into here, uh, because I think it is the reason the reason why Wendy's art maybe is, is, is so unique. You touch on this throughout the book in, in several different places, but this idea that um, Wendy as an artist, um, well, actually Wendy is a person first and then how, who Wendy is as a person kind of influences the way she has developed um, her art um, is, uh, you know, that, that Wendy has this ability to, to merge both masculine and feminine by, you know, kind of traditional definitions of those words, Western definitions of those words, um, seamlessly. And that she, um, you know, both, you know, as a person doesn't necessarily always um, see or or adhere to those, those, those rules that we set out as a society. And then as a result, she sort of effortlessly and seamlessly kind of mixes the two in a way that frankly is unique. And, and the section that really, that, that, that idea stood out to me um, was the section on Stormbringer. And um, that was, you know, Wendy's um, work on the, the Elric stories um, that she was attempting to turn into a, a semi-animated feature as a college product, uh, a college project. And there's a section in there where, um, you, you know, you're talking about, um, or what you're interviewing Wendy. So you transcribed this interview where Wendy was talking about how um, a lot of other artists didn't get Elric right in Wendy's mind mm-hmm. in, their, in, their, in their versions of him because they didn't nail the, the, the feminine side of him correctly. Um, and that, that that is such a key thing to that character's persona right? For good or for ill. Um, and that, you know, Wendy's sensibility allowed her, at least in her own mind, to fuse those two things in a way that, that kind of captured both that, both sides of that coin, um, in the character. And that, um, you know, that for her was the way to express who this character was. So, um, again, just something that I hadn't really thought about before, you know, you talk a, a lot about it with the, the, the manga connection, and how Wendy was able to take that Japanese influence and marry it to, again, the Jack Kirby style, a very masculine, um, you know, comic book art. And you mush them together in this unique way and out comes, well, ElfQuest, right? So uh, just curious what your thoughts are on that. Again, this is, I think, a unique happening in artistic evolution where she grew up every year. Uh, she was like seven or eight years old when this happened, but where she grew up in Gilroy, California, every year there was a, uh, a Buddhist temple and they would have in July, I think, the Oban Festival, which has to do with saying hello to your ancestors okay. in, in, in a celebration. She heard the music 
because it was a couple of streets over from where she lived. She heard the music one evening and, and snuck out of the house and went to this. I think she's seven, eight years old. And, and so they're having the Oban Festival. And here comes this little little kid. <laughs> and they they welcomed her in. They They gave her a little happy coat. And she just began to dance with everybody with you know got into the music and and became a celebrant without even knowing what it was all about but she began to it began to infuse into her an eastern sensibility an eastern philosophy an eastern way of looking at life which is different from our western way and if you want to just distill that into comics terms it's an Eastern sensibility that leads to manga, which is a lot more spiritual, a lot more ethereal, uh, a lot, I'll put it in air quotes, f- a lot more feminine. Sure. And then we have our Western, which is the superhero, which is the, the macho, which is the muscle, the He-Man, the Jack Kirby. And I say that with 150% respect. Of course, for, for Kirby, there, there, there's no other artist like Kirby. He's mythic. He was just, but he was very down to earth, very massive. Wendy loved the stuff that Jack Kirby was doing. Comics like the early Avengers or the early Fantastic Four. She also liked those titles because they were family. They were groups, tribes, and tribes. Exactly. Her own family wasn't that great, so she gravitated once again, as I mentioned earlier toward that which provided any sense of what she didn't have. If Wendy didn't have something, she'd either read about it or try to make it. Yeah. She couldn't have her own cartoons, so she would make them on paper as early as, you know, seven or eight years old. So she loved the work of Jack Kirby. It was massive. It was powerful. It was dynamic. And at the same time, though, because of being exposed to eastern ways of thinking this was a very early exposure to eastern art she discovered manga long before it came to be widely available and popular in this country in the in the late 1960s and there was there was a style of of uh, movement and and at the same time lightness that appealed to her and she put those two together in a way that nobody else that I know of has. And you see it in every panel in ElfQuest. Absolutely. Cutter is a little Jack Kirby bantam rooster. He's solid. He's He's got weight. And yet he moves like the wind. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just one example. Yeah. That's well, just one example. I'm flipping through the book right now trying to find the page. I didn't write it down, but... Um, the, there, there's a section where, um, where, where, you know, you're talking about all of this and, and how Wendy, you know, ha- discovered this, this, uh, Eastern art influence and how it fascinated her and how she began to infuse it into her art. And there's a really great section of panels again, that I'm not able to find flipping through it because the book is so damn big, um, is, <laughs> is, uh, Wendy kind of doing character studies in a more kind of maybe slightly more realistic, but still comic stylized, maybe, you know, Western Jack Kirby style. Um, and then sort of what the character would look like in a, in a manga Japanese style. And you really see, you, re, you, you see Wendy kind of playing with that and learning how to use it 
Um, and again, it's just a, a brilliant example of the kind of stuff that you've included in here. And, and, and again, folks, if you have not gotten this book, you need to, because we are literally barely scratching the surface. Um, so, um, all right, well, let's go back a little bit to something you said a, a, a little while ago, and that was this idea of Wendy's, Wendy being able to be essentially a human VCR. Um, where she could see something and basically have this photographic memory. I almost fell out of my chair when I was reading Line of Beauty and got to the section on Alakazam the Great. And I realized, looking <laughs> at the art that Wendy did as a child, that this was her being able to essentially copy or recreate images that she saw on a movie screen multiple after multiple viewings but still she was able to then go home and sit down and draw these little suckers completely on model completely on model i i, I cannot grasp it um this goes directly back to what i said about what life was like if you liked a movie in 1961 which is when alakazam was imported to the united states you either saw it when it came out or, you know, if you snooze, you lose. This was one of the, 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 the pivotal moments in her artistic life. She saw this movie and it just blew her mind. She was 10 years old. And the reason for that, I mean, we all as kids saw Disney. We all as kids saw Warner Brothers cartoons. We, you know, this was the first thing she had ever seen that was up there on the screen in color moving with sound and music that spoke to that eastern that other way of looking at the world that other way of doing things and unless i guess maybe there was any of that in uh tv imports of astro boy or eighth man when i saw those and i don't remember anything really particularly spiritual alakazam the great was full of spiritual teaching but it was eastern remember she had had a taste of that mm -hmm. for a couple of years and it was just amazing to her here was a full-length color beautiful I mean, never mind the hokey American voices that were dubbed into it. Mm -hmm. It was the story. It was her first exposure to the the great Asian Chinese, I think, myth of the way west, of the Monkey King. Right. And she went nuts. And she bugged her local theater. She saw it at, at a theater that was some towns away. She bugged her local theater until they got it. As a 10-year-old. As a 10-year-old, <laughs> she bugged the manager of the theater, and then she saw it every time it played, just recording and recording and recording and recording. And then when it finally went away, she didn't have it anymore. So what did she do? She made her own. And that's why you'll see the examples. Uh, she, she, she made a comic book of Alakazam with the dialogue intact, with the scenes intact, and the characters are spot-on model because she just recorded it in her mind and memory that faithfully. Yeah, I mean, it just, it, it really is incredible. So Alakazam leads me into another chunk of what you feature in Line of Beauty. And it's something that you actually 
there's a there's a line in there, and I can't remember if something that you wrote or if it's a quote from Wendy herself or or what it is, but um, but it's something that I was thinking as I was flipping through reading this particular section, <laughs> and the, when I saw it in words on the page, it was another one of those like, oh my god, oh my god, you know, I jumped out of my chair because <laughs> it was it's right there in front of you, and what I'm talking about is is the the Ralph Bakshi stuff in relation to stuff yeah. stuff is good yes <laughs> and um and again there's a whole chapter a whole section uh on on this in the book and we don't need to rehash it in gory detail but there this notion of um you know kind of wendy being influenced by the work of ralph bakshi or you know all of that and i'm gonna let you say something about that i, I could I, I, we're doing this via video, by the way, everyone. And so I can see Richard's face. And so I know <laughs> when I can read his expression. So, but um, the, the, the specific thing I'm mentioning is, um, you know, there's this sort of comparison of Weehawk, you know, the character from Wizards. And um, and as I was flipping through, looking at some of that art and, you know, having just read the other previous chapters in Line of Beauty about Alakazam, I thought to myself, you know, honestly, the look of Wendy's versions of Weehawk and those characters is so much more akin to her work that she did as a little kid decades earlier in portraying Alakazam the Great. And so this idea that, um, you know, that Wendy had to, like, maybe adopt a look out of the, the, the Bakshi um, kind of, well stolen looks of you know his artwork or whatever you know is it really it, the way that you guys put that in there that you put this in the book it really is a perfect showcase of how wendy has been drawing like this ever since she was a little kid and this this variant of kind of the squatter you know kind of rounder faced um you know it, it, that was always there and in fact if anything wendy's versions of the the bakshi style actually look more like her style than they do his, if that makes sense. Well, yes, it makes perfect sense. This was one of a couple of sections in the book that Wendy and I had some discussion about. As a bit of uh, lead-in, there's something about, I don't want to paint all ElfQuest fans with the same broad brush, but there's something in a lot of fanish memory that suggests that because Wizards came out in April of 1977 and ElfQuest first appeared in February of 1978, therefore the look of ElfQuest was influenced by the look of Wizards. That's very simple. It makes a certain amount of superficial sense, but it's absolutely incorrect. There's not a week goes by that somehow we don't get asked, was ElfQuest influenced by Wizards? That's why we have one of the frequently asked questions on ElfQuest.com about that very question. <laughs> I wanted to do what I could to drive a stake through that particular beast <laughs> and try to lay it to rest because it is misinformed without going too deeply into it, because that's what the book is for, Wendy has been drawing her style of elves a lot longer than, than Wizards has existed. And we've got some examples of that in the book. 
we went to see Wizards when it came out in the theaters in April of 1977, and we were blown away for a couple of different reasons. One, it was the first semi-adult fantasy cartoon. It wasn't Disney, not by any stretch of the imagination. It no. was rough. It was rough and it was crude, but it was also full of an undeniable energy. Second reason we were blown away was we were already thinking about ElfQuest. Wendy had already brought that up to me. And when we saw that, and then a month later, this little thing called Star Wars came out, <laughs> Memorial Day 77, and just blew the socks off everything in the world, we realized, oh my God, science fiction and fantasy films and cartoons, we're not weirdos anymore. The whole world loves this stuff. <laughs> Maybe ElfQuest has a chance now. Right. So it was like a, a motivational impetus, not an artistic one. Wendy began working on ElfQuest. At the same time, she had respect for Bakshi's accomplishments as an animator. And we knew that he was working on Lord of the Rings. We didn't know if ElfQuest was going to fly. We didn't, you know, there were a lot of unknowns. So she began a correspondence which said, in essence, hey, is there, uh, is there a way maybe I can work on Lord of the Rings? Turned out, no, with a little side story that I'll leave to the book. Yes. And it's a delicious but, little nugget of history. So we'll leave it yeah. at that. <laughs> but there was a suggestion that lasted about, I don't know, a couple of months. Bakshi suggested that he wanted to do something with Wizards Beyond the Movie. And the suggestion that came up was a newspaper strip, an adventure type strip. And would Wendy be interested in that? So she thought that she might. So in order to prepare a portfolio for submission to Bakshi, she taught herself the Bakshi style right. of drawing elves. If you look at Weehawk next to Cutter, they are very, very dissimilar. But she wanted to do right by this submission and so put together a portfolio of samples and submitted that. That didn't go anywhere. So she turned back to the doing of ElfQuest. Now, if you know anything about artists, you know that if they take they're, they're like actors, you know how an actor, if if they're playing a character who's heavier than they physically are, they'll put on weight. Sure. An artist if they're going to take an assignment and they want their work to be on model, they train their artistic muscles to draw like the assignment. When you come off of that, it's not like snapping your fingers and you're back to your own style. You kind of have to get back to yourself. There's another perfect example of that. Uh, that very, that nobody knows about that has to do with uh, a story that she did for Marvel using the character of Triton. Uh, she was well into ElfQuest at that time. And there are some examples in the book of when she started developing the look of Triton. Triton started off a lot more elf-like than he actually looks. So she had to train herself to juggle between drawing Triton as a superheroic eight heads tall and drawing Cutter as a fantastic five and a half heads tall. And if you think that wasn't a high wire juggling act, it was almost it was almost like 
kind of artistic schizophrenia to keep Triton in his place and Cutter in his place and not let the two styles mess with each other. Yeah, no, I think that's actually a perfect example. And it's it's kind of the opposite, uh, uh, the opposite of or the other side of the coin of um, what you were just talking about with, you know, maybe some, Wendy had some muscle memory from training herself to draw the Bakshi characters. Um, in this case, she was trying to untrain herself for drawing her elf and her elf quest characters as she was trying to draw a Marvel superhero. Um, exactly. So, yeah. So I think that's a really, that puts it all in a lot of perspective. And again, visually what you've included in line of beauty, I mean, you really do see that. And you know, the other point that you make in the book is, um, you know, you've included a ton of, of these illustrations. And I think they were in part for the development of that comic potential comic series or comic strip series uh, based on wizards that you were just mentioning. Um, you know, as you're looking at those, what I see as a, as a Wendy Peeney fan is I see all of those as basically, you know, wolf riders, you know, Wendy's, Wendy's elf quest characters kind of just sort of uh, underneath an overlay of, of the wizards characters. Right. So it's like, if you know anything about Wendy's art, you look at that and you see this, Frankly, the line of beauty, I think, is what it is. That kind of reads through. And um, even though they're not her characters, like, if anything, it's a struggle for her to get, to, to twist her own art style into what, uh, you know, the, the, the Bakshi style is. So it's, it's really interesting. And you can see it all just by the, the Ill images that you put in the book. But in both instances, it's more Wendy's style there than it is, again, the, the, the Bakshi style. And so, again, you kind of see it all, and it really just emphasizes the, uh, one, one last point I want to make on this, is that there is no one Wendy Peeney style, right? I mean, Wendy has mastered a whole variety of styles, and, and you know, her, some of it uh, is, you know, age-related and time in her life-related and that kind of thing. But, you know, you could see elements of that that thread all the way through her whole career in a way that I've never really been able to see before, um, because of what you the way you put together line of beauty. And so again, like if Wendy is drawing uh, Alakazam esque elves because their cloak her style, you know she's tapping into that to be able to draw the wizard style. That's still Wendy's style feeding in there and not the other way around. So I think you've made it really really clear in this this whole section of the book and, 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 and honestly added a little bit more context that not, I don't, I don't think the world really knows and it makes it, uh, uh, makes a lot more sense. And it also makes it, uh, understandable why this is maybe a little grain of sand in your contact lens over the years. <laughs> it's simply that for most people, they know ElfQuest. ElfQuest started at a certain time and it's, it's still going on, but that's all they know. And, this book, one of the reasons for this book's existence was I wanted to, folks, you're only looking at a fraction. It's a major fraction. It's a very important fraction. But it's still, in the scheme of things, in the scheme of development, and in the scheme of life, it's just a fraction. And there's so much more. If you want to really appreciate ElfQuest, you kind of have to know all the other bits as well. Yeah. Uh, you have to see it all in context. Yeah. And again, I think you do that brilliantly in Line of Beauty. So let's talk ElfQuest, since you brought it up. What's that? Uh, 
So obviously ElfQuest, there's a ton of ElfQuest stuff in Line of Beauty. Um, actually, I wouldn't even say, I wouldn't say a ton. There's a good amount of ElfQuest stuff in here, but um, to the point you were just making, there's a lot more to Wendy than just ElfQuest. And so, uh, but of the ElfQuest stuff in there, um, you know, lots of unseen art, stuff that I personally have never seen, um, you know, illustrations of what looked to be um, maybe the first or maybe just, you know, early iterations of, you know, uh, of Talit, of Venka, of uh, Free Touch, um, even Lord Val and Winnowill, um, you know, and so those are always treats. So thank you for including those. Um, and another reason for, for you, you know, ElfQuest fans out there to gobble this thing up. Um, oh, Petal Wing, too. There's a really interesting painting illustration of Petal Wing looking pretty sinister. And mm -hmm. w tell us about that. Well, you can't talk about uh, Wendy's life's work without talking about ElfQuest. And even though there are two previous books that talk about this aspect or that aspect of ElfQuest, I wanted to fit whatever went into here within the overall overarching theme of the line of beauty, which is that motion curve, whether it's on a line on paper or a sequence of, of uh, actions that look animated on the page, or even the panel designs themselves, how they curve to draw your eye in a certain direction. So yes, of course there's ElfQuest. And I realized, oh my God, I've, you know, I've, there's 600 pages of other ElfQuest book out there. Uh, <laughs> I do not want to repeat. So that took me on a spelunking trip through the archives to find what exactly a hadn't been published before. And there's a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of, of a couple of pieces I think that, that are repeated, but, only for the sake of illustrating the line of beauty, find stuff that, that hadn't been seen before and that illustrate what I wanted them to illustrate. And I was, I was really, as, as much as I've gone through these flat files, I, I was continuously finding up until the last couple of weeks of the deadline of this thing, I was finding new art and I would, I would send a file to, um, to John Fleskus and I say, you know, page 154 you know that that one up in the up, uh, upper left hand corner no get rid of that one i want this one there instead it's even better <laughs> so yes there is there is some some really amazing stuff that was just a wonderful uh discovery for me to find this stuff but the particular one you're talking about um it's oh on god this 197 197 and i know the one it's the very 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 first uh, illustration of Petalwing. This is, uh, I'm looking at it, it's dated 78. So this predates, I mean, Petalwing didn't show up in the comic until issue number 10. Mm -hmm. They get to the Forbidden Grove and they discover all the cocoons and there's Petalwing and all the rest of them. Obviously, Wendy knew what this character was and what this character was going to be like. So she did this uh, mixed media, gorgeous color illustration of Petalwing. And you're right. At that moment, it's kind of a menacing little bugger. <laughs> it looks exactly like it looks. It's doing what it does. It's it's uh, wrapping up a sleeping mouse. But it's just got a look in the eye. And the, the first Petalwing story didn't show up until Epic number one, which I think was 1980 or 1981. So that's still two or three years after this. This was a concept. And 
she has captured the look of the character 100%. But between this and when issue 10 came out, five or six years after this painting was done, the character's personality had evolved beyond just being a menacing don't don't fall asleep in the forest because you won't wake up right kind of kind of character there is that element still there but the nature of the story's evolution and the nature of the character's evolution kind of dictated that there be some silliness and some some rascaliness and uh some some stubbornness as well and that's how pedaling came to be the bug that we all know and love <laughs> yeah so so yeah just another little great tidbit of elf quest art that has never been seen before um you mentioned something just now that um also really uh kind of blew my mind as i was reading through line of beauty and you, this is this idea that not only does wendy uh either use or doesn't use the line of beauty itself within her art like the actual illustrations or um you know the art within a, with a within a comic panel but she also uses it to great effect in the actual page layouts of comics and and the the lines that she uses for the borders and the one um you know one really great example of it is the whole scene where um where skywise cuts off the thief's thumb and you know i've i've adored that page it's so filled with dynamic energy and rage and emotion um you know for as long as i've been reading elfquest but it wasn't until i i saw it in the context of line of beauty and what you were talking uh, and the point that you were making with it that those very panels have an element of that s curve in it that yeah you know i mean it just it's like oh my god i've been looking at this this page for literally 30 years and i didn't <laughs> notice that <laughs> Well, I mean, that that in itself, what you just said is a testament to the skill because it didn't call attention to itself consciously, that page layout or any of the page layouts. But at the same time, your eye is irresistibly drawn in the arc of motion as it as the sword swings down and down and down and then suddenly boom, you know, there's the yeah <laughs> the final panel. There's nothing that the line of beauty can't be applied to, whether it's a smoothly flowing line of beauty or a tension-inducing line of beauty. And that refers to a drawing of a character. It refers to the layout of a page. It refers to how the rhythm of dialogue flows from one character to the next it's, it's just applicable everywhere, and Wendy has mastered it. Yeah, for sure. Um, a couple other ElfQuest things. Um, one thing, which I'm not going to reveal the answer to, but I loved finding out who, who inspired at least the look of the character of Malene, the Sun Villager, um, who has <laughs> been known to uh, you know, have dalliances with our, our buddy Skywise. Um, you know, little little nuggets of lore about ElfQuest are kind of scattered throughout this book. Um, and it just, you know, it makes it uh, a, a really, really rewarding kind of read through. Um, all right. Here's where we're going to get down to brass tacks as far as ElfQuest goes. In the latest issue of Final Quest, issue number 19, 
we are introduced to something uh, pretty crazy, <laughs> and that is Fire Elves. And you guys um, deliciously teased a while ago that there was going to be uh, another example of, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a new new character or something in, in Final Quest that was based on a really, really old character design. Um, similar to how uh, Sunstream's Wave Dancer form was mm-hmm. actually based on an illustration that Wendy did called Little Sea Prince, which, by the way, you've included in Line of Beauty as well, but um, how Wendy was able to take that old idea and breathe new life into it by weaving it into ElfQuest. Well, sneaky things that you are, you have included that original piece um, that Wendy did that then obviously she manipulated into what we see in Final Quest. So uh, talk about that. There's not much to say. And I can hear the howls of outrage going out now among fan of when I <laughs> throughout ElfQuest, there have been essentially the four main tribes. There have been the Wolf Riders, there have been the Sun Folk, there have been the Gliders, and there have been the Gobacks. And over the years there have been hints and allegations of there must be others. Where where did Tyr come from was an early question. Where does Dreon come from? That's an ongoing question. The world is big. And for the sake of being able to tell a compact, lean, mean story, we focused on pretty much on those tribes. Wave dancers came along because there's a lot of water. Maybe some of them went into the sea. Okay, we got wave dancers. If you take that thinking to its logical conclusion, well, what are the chances that there may be others uh, who are are distant, much changed descendants? I mean, we got the scary ones, the ruthless ones now. What are the chances that there are other tribes in the world? Well, it's not 100 percent and certainly not zero percent. So in that issue of Final Quest, we, Wendy, decided All right, I'm going to have a little fun. (laughs) And just as Suntop's wave dancer form was inspired by a drawing that she did many, many years ago, this is just way too good to waste. Well, oh, my, look, here's this other artwork. It's a series of, of, of other characters. And wouldn't that one right there, wouldn't that make a wonderfully infuriatingly intriguing possibility for yet another new group of elves. Yeah. And that's all I'll say. Okay. All right. Well, (laughs) I might, okay. I'll, I'll let you off the hook. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go any deeper than that, but I do have one last question about it. Oh, you can ask anything you want. (laughs) I I know this and I probably won't get an answer or at least not a, a straight one. Um, no, I want to know. Like, so, so did you unearth this old illustration of a, you know, sort of a fire elemental that Wendy did, and then Wendy saw that, and that is what inspired her to want to infuse that into Final Quest, or was it something that she already had in mind, and and that then inspired you to include it in Line of Beauty? I'm going to go out a little bit on a limb here because I do not honestly remember every detail of the sequence of events. But given that Wendy has said to me several times during the crafting and the construction of Line of Beauty, 
oh my god, I forgot I had done that. Right. <laughs> it's it's possible that I found these drawings in the course of looking for material for Line of Beauty. I found these things and I scanned and tweaked and, and made them as, as good as I could. And then I said to her, hey, remember these? And she may have said, oh, wow. Whether she said out loud or just thought, oh, I can use this. That's the process by which we have these mysterious fire elves now. It's incredibly organic and I love it. It feels about right. But, you know, the other side of that is that she may have thought, you know, we've got water, we've got air, we've got earth, we need fire. And she may <laughs> have remembered this suite of, of drawings. So, it, you know, it could work either way. Yeah. Speaking of water, you just mentioned the wave dancers and, um, you know, a little, maybe a little bit of some of the logic behind introducing them, right? There's a lot of water on this planet. It stands to reason that some of these elves would have gone there. But this is another thing that really stood out to me reading Line of Beauty. And that is that Wendy has got a thing for creatures of the sea, right? And in fact, mm -hmm. uh, I, I wrote it down here. There's actually a quote of, about Wendy, from Wendy, talking about, uh, I think she was talking about Triton in one of the interviews. And her quote <laughs> is, anything with a fin. <laughs> you know, in reference to in, in reference to her love affair with these sort of mer creatures, right? And I know I know that um, you know the creature from the Black Lagoon is one of Wendy's favorite um, you know creatures out there. And in fact, I actually got to watch that film for the very first time with Wendy, which was quite the treat and an experience. <laughs> um, but you know, going through Line of Beauty, you know, you see Triton, um, you see this this story called uh, Fane's Revenge, this sort of illustrated comic-esque tale that, again, never heard, I've never seen or heard of this before. Maybe no one else other than you um, in recent memory has ever seen this thing. That, that features kind of a merman. There is um, actually an illustration elsewhere um, in the book um, in the sort of section on pushing the boundaries and erotic art and all of that stuff, which we're going to get to in a second, um, where it's this woman who, you know, looks kind of like Wendy, maybe in her 20s or 30s, uh, reaching out um, to this merman. And it's kind of infused with this eroticism, right? And so, you know, when I read the line, anything with a fin, it, it kind of made sense. So, But my the thing that the, the thought that I had was it kind of surprises me now that I know how much Wendy has an affinity for these you know, these sort of sea elves that it took you as long as you did to work them into the, the overarching narrative of ElfQuest. Like, I'm actually kind of surprised that, you know, you didn't introduce them earlier on just because I would have thought that Wendy would have really kind of been pushing for it because she loves the suckers. Well, that's an excellent question. And the answer I would give is that everything for the sake of the story, if you think about it, throughout the original quest, throughout Siege of Blue Mountain, throughout Kings of the Broken Wheel, there was really no need to go there. Introducing yet another tribe of characters would not have fit. The, you know, those three series are so tight, they're so economical, that having more characters to deal with would have been, there's a term of art in Hollywood called showstopper. And that means 
if you have, for example, an action movie, but right in the middle of the action movie, you stop to maybe explain the weapon. It's called a showstopper because suddenly the momentum is completely broken. Bring in the wave dancers into original Siege and Kings would have been a showstopper. When we had time and a little bit more leisure to expand upon the world of Two Moons with Hidden Years and Shards and New Blood and all of those, then we could give them. The Wave Dancers, remember, Wendy introduced the notion of those in the role-playing game right. way back in the, I think, early, mid-1980s. They weren't, strictly speaking, mer-people or mer-elves. They just lived at the ocean's edge. But they, they were called wave dancers then, and they were a seagoing tribe of elves for the sake of the game. We knew they were there when we had the time and the ability and the room to give them a story. That's when they evolved into the characters. And then when Wendy brought them back to us, in the discovery and, and now in final quest, she took what had been done and said, okay, this is good, but we need to streamline it. We need to cut away the fat and make it work within the grand 40 year arc of elf quest. Yeah. And I think um, we, as a reader, I like the wave dancers so much more for having been edited. Um, you know, the, the, the tribe was, as we, you know, originally kind of saw it, you know, lots of characters, they were kind of in their own mini series, um, you know, and so the, in, in working them back into the, the bigger narrative arc, um, mm-hmm. you guys have necessarily had to do that. And I think that, um, it's just a, a an example of your skill and ability at storytelling, because if you had tried to herd around that entire tribe and, and have everybody kind of have a focus and a spotlight, you know, you could get away with it in the discovery a little bit because it was kind of about them. Right. But yeah. in final quest, you know, we, we know a handful of them, you know, snakeskin and um, Skimback and Korafe and obviously reef and spray and salt, you know, those, those are sort of the wave dancers that have risen uh, to the top and kind of get the focus in the same way that, you know, the sun villagers or the go backs, you know, we never knew every, name of every character in those tribes either right so um so again i i appreciate that that you guys did that and the work that probably went into it trying to figure out which ones to kind of showcase and which ones not and that kind of thing um it also going back to our fire elf friend uh makes me think or makes me realize that you know what you were just saying about introducing a character um at the right time in the story is so important. Otherwise, again, it becomes a showstopper or it becomes nothing more than fan service, which don't get me wrong. As a fan, I love to be serviced, right? <laughs> but I, 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 could, I could appreciate what, how, as a good storyteller, why you wouldn't want to do that. And the fact is this idea of a fire elf or a tribe of elves or a group of elves that um, have figured out how to use their magic to change their matter into pure energy and live in fire. That's not something that you could ever have introduced into ElfQuest prior to this exact moment in ElfQuest based on what we know. 
Because once again, it would have been so different and so potentially intriguing and so eye-opening that it would have hijacked the narrative momentum. And at, especially at this stage of the game, there's there's no room for anything but the core nitty-gritty. You're on the roller coaster, guys. Now you're strapped in and down you go. There's no stopping it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I've got a couple, two, two more things. Um, we're already a little bit over two hours, so I want to be respectful of your time and um, and our listeners' stamina. Um, so I, <laughs> you know, things I'm not going to go into detail on that I just want to give a shout out to that I really loved about uh, Line of Beauty. You, you have a whole section of Wendy's wildlife illustrations. Needless to say, I loved those. Um, <laughs> there's a whole section on Beauty and the Beast, and um, you know, the, the, you know, I was talking about how, you know, Wendy talks about, you know, anything with a fin kind of gets her, gets her going. Well, <laughs> after seeing her illustrations of, of the beast, um, sans clothing, I guess I could say the same thing about anything with fur. And I don't know if that makes me a furry, but I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, so just a couple other little nuggets of things for you guys to look for in the book. But, um, we can't we can't end this without talking about Wendy's trans um, her her transition to digital from you know traditional pen and paper pad paint mediums and this is the subject of an entire chapter but I'd love to get your perspective on it. Well, it's no secret, and we've we've said this in public before. Wendy has said it many times that uh, from the time that she knew what art was and the time that she began working seriously with uh, color, she wanted to paint with light. And you can, uh, the work that she has done putting aniline dye and watercolor and prismacolor pencil and stuff down on paper is gorgeous. You know, I, I know I'll go back to that drawing, uh, that painting of Petalwing. Yeah. That is just outstandingly beautiful. But she, because, you know, light is is the essence of color she's always wanted to paint with light well, I couldn't do that until we had computers and light comes through the monitor and you're seeing the real spectrum you're not seeing reflected light you're seeing transmitted light so as soon as the technology and the software existed whereby she could start doing that she jumped right in and I won't say she has never looked back because we were at uh, a a show just a few weeks ago in Kansas City, Spectrum Fantastic Art Live, and she was doing these large easel, essentially Sharpie uh, and paper drawings of some of the characters. And I suppose I had wondered, maybe she had as well, whether or not working with a stylus on a Cintiq tablet would change your muscle memory to the point where it was not so easy anymore to go back to a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil. And I watched there. I, you know, I, I watched as she did these drawings, and the memory is still there. It's, I, you know, it's in her DNA at this point. But digital allows for certain things, certain, I'll call them tricks, certain techniques, certain even I'll call them shortcuts that have no effect in a negative way on the finished art. It was a natural stage of evolution for her. 
Yeah, and, and the, the evolution is something that you talk about in Line of Beauty. Um, and I thought that was really interesting um, how Wendy talked about in an interview that you've included, um, you know, just sort of that evolution of her learning to use the Cintiq and learning to use Photoshop and, and trying to figure out even a fraction of the power that the, the that program in particular offers to an artist, right? Um, and I thought it was really um, enlightening um, what Wendy was sharing in this interview about um, her point of view as an artist you know, kind of working in this new medium as she was doing, say, Searcher and the Sword and Discovery, you know, full-blown digital, full-color comics. Um, you know, really, that's the first time that that ever happened with ElfQuest. And she just mm -hmm. had some really interesting insights into why those particular stories kind of look the way they do. And again, I don't want to give it away, but I, you know, for folks who are going to get this and read it, um, pay attention to that section because it's some new information that um, that I think really does add a lot to the understanding, particularly of the discovery, um, of the look and feel of, of that art there. So um, the other thing um, that I just really loved was your commentary on the very first digital illustration that Wendy did of Winnow Will. <laughs> um, after, you know, you spending months and months and months trying to master Photoshop and dear Wendy gets on there and 15 minutes later she produces this like stunning piece of art and yeah so I feel your pain on that I'm trying to teach myself Photoshop right now and it's slow going <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know I've learned a lot more since I knew then Wendy's learned a lot more since she knew then but neither of us I think have really scratched the surface of what it can do and I think at this point, I hope I'm not speaking out of line for her because she has said to me a couple of times that she does not want me messing around with her computer. She's working on an iMac with a Cintiq, but she's using earlier versions of the Mac OS with earlier versions of Photoshop. She says, look, I've been working with this for years you introduce a new version of the OS or you introduce a new version of Photoshop and the toolbox is going to be different and I'm going to have to learn this. Don't you dare <laughs> touch my computer until Final Quest is done. She has on her plate some projects that involve digital imagery and animation and sound and so on and so forth that she is very very excited about which i'm not going to say more than that so uh. she's not oh come on this is me He's back, right? i know but you have to let, let us express that uh, soon enough when when final quest is done she is not dropping digital work what she's dropping <laughs> for the first time in 40 years is the notion of working to a deadline Sure, yeah. We have plans for the continuation of ElfQuest. I just spent two monstrously intense days at uh, Dark Horse Comics meeting with half a dozen different groups of people from creative to production to marketing about what the rest of 2017 and all of 2018 could be like. And uh, so, no, we're not closing the door on ElfQuest, but this wrapping up Final Quest is the culmination, the, uh, 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 the victory lap 
of a story that has been 40 years in the making and the telling. And we, especially Wendy, she has said this, I want to find out who I am when I'm not working to a deadline. But are we, are we, you know, abandoning telling stories and doing artwork? Hell no. All right. Well, that is excellent. Um, you know, you've shared that before, but hearing it said so emphatically with a couple of new little nuggets of teasing info in there is definitely really, really incredible to hear. Um, all right, so last but not least, drum roll, please. We got to talk about this pillow book. <laughs> <laughs> You've included it last in the book, in Line of Beauty, um, probably for the same reason that I'm saving it to the last in this interview, because it is juicy and saucy and delicious and, quite frankly, a little bit shocking. Um, not because of the explicitness of it. Um, but because it is a level of going there, and I'm doing air quotes, that we really have not seen you guys do within ElfQuest. And frankly, even in, in, in things like Mask of the Red Death, which are a little bit more adult-oriented. And so, again, for folks, if you have not read Line of Beauty yet, there is a section at the back um, featuring some of Wendy's erotic elf quest art which we heard about a long time ago and then it never was really talked about again and so fans have been you know drooling and 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 and, and craving to get a look at this stuff for ages and lo and behold you're flipping through line of beauty and there it is at the back i was shocked i was not expecting it and again it's because you guys have been really um i i can tell that you put a lot of focus in elf quest in particular at being suggestive rather than in your face with a lot of the adult themes. And, and I get the sense that you, in particular, Richard, really um, want to be careful about keeping ElfQuest as an all-ages thing and not doing anything that would, you know, whether, whether you agree with it or not, that would get the, 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 you know, the moral police after you um, in terms of ElfQuest. So seeing this ElfQuest art in this final section... Um, was kind of kind of blew my mind. So what do you have to say about that? Well, <laughs> listen, I wanted this book to be a, a testament, a celebration, a memorialization, something of an analysis of this force of artistic nature that we call Wendy. And from just about the very beginning of ElfQuest, which is what most people know her for, there has been an element of the suggestive, the very veiled, erotic, just the way she draws the characters. I mean, they are kind of exuding sexiness. From her teen years, one of the ways I mentioned early on in this that that life at home was not so great. So she would escape into other worlds, create other tribes, other groups that she felt that she could be a part of. At that time in most anyone's life, sexuality is starting to become a factor. And Wendy being an artist, she's no different, but she 
because things were a little repressive at home, she was able to channel the energy onto paper, into her drawings. And she began to experiment with erotic subject matter. Nothing prurient, nothing, you know, that would be horribly shocking, especially these days, but that were in her mind to be kept off limits. She she would put that stuff where it couldn't be accidentally stumbled over by parental eyes. I determined in putting this book together that it would be incomplete and I think criminally negligent not to talk about that aspect of her life and her, her artwork. We talked about this a lot. I, I bet. <laughs> Suffice to say, we had a lot of discussion. It was very productive. In fact, one thing she told me, you alluded to it earlier on. She said, oh, my God, this stuff is coming out while I'm still alive. Most people don't get this until after they're dead. They don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but what's what's the sense? Uh, uh, you know, when you're dead, you're gone. But I, I, I wanted to do this. And we had discussions about what would be appropriate to go in and what would be a little more than she was comfortable. <laughs> it was like... You know, a lot of give and take, and I hope I have done it justice. Also, there was an outside editorial guiding hand, John Fleskus, who is like the owner of the company yeah. and the, the <laughs> uber editor of all of his books, has nothing whatsoever against sexiness and eroticism, but he knows in a book like this that is going to be on the shelves at Barnes and Noble, that it's going to be read by, we hope, a general audience. It's okay to to go there a little bit, but don't go too far. And we established some guidelines and we kept to them. But I think it is a fair look at the at, at one of the defining aspects of what makes Wendy's art so appealing and that is the eroticism and that it is also an expression of the line of beauty because when you have a sinuous curve whether it's the line of a body or or some vines that are wrapping themselves around someone that's very very sexy it can be if done right and and wendy does it right i i do want to correct it's not just ElfQuest art that's in this section. Right. There are other examples uh, that show that it's been there, you know, all her life. In fact, that Beauty and the Beast sketch <laughs> is part of this section. Right. Yeah. The pillow book section, I think, is those last couple pages of it that is kind of the specific alpha start. But yeah, do you, you've included an entire chapter, or it's actually an interlude called Crossing the Line that really gets to everything that you were just talking about beyond elf quest um and and, um and yeah you're absolutely right it's it's all there um well i just i want you guys to know that as a as a reader as a fan um and and as somebody who grew up reading elf quest for whom the the way that you guys presented things like sexuality and eroticism um were really uh foundational in me growing up into the adult that i've become and helped me in ways um that i wasn't getting anywhere else um to see the inclusion of this section 
particularly the ElfQuest stuff, is really powerful. And um, I'm so, so glad that you chose to share it. Again, I know it makes Wendy maybe a little uncomfortable, and I get that, right? I mean, this is sort of her deep inner stuff that, you know, she never probably thought anyone would ever see. So um, thank you for making that bold decision to include it. And again, like, none of this is anything, especially, again, to your uh, point earlier, by today's standards, I mean, none, none of this is shocking, right? I mean, this is stuff that you could go online and see 10 times worse at any moment of the day, right? But in the context of, of knowing who Wendy is as an artist and the connection to the biographical parts of her story that you've really shared here, I think readers are really going to get the context for it. And um, and again, I think, I think uh, the world is ready for this stuff. And in fact, I think in many ways they're craving it, right? So... Um, so again, I just want to say thank you to both of you guys for, you know, to Wendy for putting that energy out there and to you, Richard, for, um, being bold and putting it in this book. Cause I think it's an important piece of, you know, when, who Wendy is as an artist and her legacy, as you were just saying. I thank you for saying that. I absolutely agree. If I was going to do this at all, I wasn't going to do it 90% <laughs> for better or worse. It's a hundred percent. And, you know, just like everything else, just like ElfQuest itself, you finish this book and you're going to say, oh, I wonder what else there is. <laughs> and you there's know, plenty more. There's you know, plenty more. So, yeah. so Wendy did not literally burn every last piece of it. Please let's tell just us say, <laughs> let's, let's just say that some of it survives. Okay. All right. That's, that's good enough for me. I don't ever have to see it, but knowing it, that it's out there for... Wendy to look at and for you guys to, you know, appreciate in, you know, your own world. I think that's, that's good enough for me. But um, yeah, the, the, that, that section where Wendy kind of the, the prelude to this part where Wendy shares, um, you know, the, her struggle with this stuff going public. Um, again, I won't t say more than that. It's, uh, it's powerful. That inclusion really puts some context there. The only final thing I can say about this is and thank you for doing this for providing a forum for uh, for this is to everyone out there no matter how much you love ElfQuest and I know some of you love it immensely no matter how much you love it no matter how much you love what Wendy does right now unless you have read this book you don't know a fraction of what she is all about and if you want to, if you want to learn that and then reapply it to your love of ElfQuest, then sit down, cup of hot chocolate, cup of chai, glass of wine, some chocolate, take your time. This is a 50,000 word novelette. A lot of people have contributed to it, and I thank them all in the book. You won't be disappointed. Well, here, here. That's exactly how... I feel about it. Um, so I think that's probably a good place for us to, to, to end. And so we can get up and stretch after this lengthy interview. <laughs> uh, I mean, a couple other things that we didn't even get to things that you mentioned in line of beauty, things uh, like how Wendy uses lighting to powerful effect, um, fashion. I mean, Wendy is like the fashion goddess when it comes to putting clothes on these characters. And even though you don't have like a dedicated section to it in this book, it, is woven throughout, no pun intended. Um, and maybe that's, that, I think that's another book that needs to get done, by the way, to plant a, a, a seed here. Um, 
somebody needs to do a look at Wendy as a fashion designer. Um, and you could probably fill at least an entire volume. So, but I'll let you catch your breath after doing this. <laughs> All right. Well, um, thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. So um, everybody get out there, get your copy of Land of Beauty. Um, as I mentioned at the top of the, the podcast here, the folks who supported the Kickstarter um, we should all have pretty much received our copies by the time you hear this. And um, shortly here, it's going to be available for retail. I know I, I've already seen it on Amazon. Um, and so by the time this airs, you can probably order it online. I believe Flesk is going to be um, carrying it directly. And as Richard mentioned, uh, it probably is going to be on the shelves in places like Barnes & Noble or your local bookseller. So in other words, you, you have no excuse not to get this book. You will not be disappointed if you are even... Uh, you know, a small fan of Wendy's, you definitely need to read this. And, um, you know, again, I just want to end by saying thank you to you, Richard, because without you, none of this would, would have, you know, been done or be here for us to enjoy. And you're, you know, again, I, I see this as your ultimate love letter to Wendy. And I think that's just incredible. And for us to be a little part of that, even as readers, is pretty powerful. So thank you. Uh, thank you. All right, guys, until next time, uh, enjoy ElfQuest, enjoy these great book, books from Fless Publications, and we'll see you on the next podcast. The music you heard throughout this episode was a track called Call of the Ancients from the album Eternal Saga by Anti Marty Kanan. And that track, plus thousands of others, are available royalty-free for your multimedia projects from jamendo.com. That's J-A-M-E-N-D-O dot com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Till next time, Shade and Sweetwater.